This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit like and subscribe, whatever you're listening on. I'm Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, Ball State University, Paul Havocott, Steelers Nation South, Rollo Coffin. We're joined tonight by special guest. He's an MVP uh, beach volleyball player. Uh, he's got over 200 tournaments that he's been in, which is top 10 all time. He has an impressive stat of winning a tournament seven straight years. In 2000, he is, and his partner, uh, Dane Blanton, they brought home an Olympic gold medal for Team USA. Currently, I have he's the owner and coach at Elite Beach Volleyball. So we are honored to have here Eric Fenoy Moana. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. You said it correctly, too. That's great. It's a good start. I, I was working on that. <laughs> <laughs> Practicing. It helps. My daughter's favorite movie is Moana, so you know, exactly. that, that helps. Yeah. Uh, I want to remind everybody before we get started, donate blood, find your local Big Red bus, and donate some blood today. They need it very badly. So uh, we're going to yeah, be I'm, I'm not even donate blood. I just signed up for a local one here. I'm O positive, and they're like, I want your blood. And then I'm like, okay, well, I, maybe the platelets. For donating okay, blood, yeah. so it's like a I don't know stronger bats where you're taking maybe it equates to two points or something. something yes, like that. something like that. Donate blood. Yeah, how about absolutely. So tonight's debate is going to be the greatest summer Olympian after Michael Phelps because if we do Michael Phelps, this debate's already over. So we're we're saying after Michael Phelps tonight. As always, we're going to have a Q and A afterwards for Erica about his career and some things that he has going on in his life. Uh, but we're going to start out with, with me tonight. I haven't started a show in a long time, and, and I'm representing Nikolai Andronioff, so uh, Soviet gymnast, and, and it, it is Soviet. We're going back that far in time here. Um, and this guy, he could do it all. Uh, seven gold medals, five silvers, three bronze at the Olympics. That is was the second most all-time uh, behind Michael Phelps there, of course. And those events, it wasn't just in one event, obviously, it included different events. So we got the floor exercise, the all-around, the rings, the vault, the parallel bars, the pommel horse, horizontal bar, and team competition. So he definitely could do it all. And then just to throw in to his stats to show how great he really was, 13 world championship medals, 10 world cup medals, and 17 European championship medals. This guy dominated for a very, very long time. Um, in, in 1974, innovation struck, and he showed the world a triple somersault dismount that had never been done before. So that was uh, just huge in, in the world of gymnastics there. He had a very aggressive style, outrageously difficult moves he was always trying to do to, to get those higher scores. And that just kind of became his go-to, was trying to be insane in these events to to pick up those medals and, and it worked. Um, so I'll kind of finish with this. Um, you know, he went on to coach Vitaly Sherbo, who was another just all-time great Olympian. Um, and, you know, and Vitaly gives him the 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 due for helping him win those medals. Um, he's coached 12, 12 years for the US uh, USSR national junior team. And then he coached Japan and took him to a gold medal in 2004. Um, sadly, he did die young, 58 years old, uh, from a neurological disorder, uh, but he was inducted in 2001 to the International Gymnastics Hall of Fame. 
So, Eric, I, I come to you here on this one. What does it take for a professional athlete to master not just one sport, but uh, literally five, six different events? Well, I'm assuming they didn't have the coaching that he was. So he's going to have to, it's even more difficult because you've got to do trial and error. Um, and as you don't have the coaching, you're going to do trial and error. There's a lot of um, discipline. I mean, that's going to be a, a big word, discipline and, and dedication to be perfect. And then on the long, along the way, you became extremely good. But the longevity is the hard part because you got to keep your body or temple in tip-top shape. That's not easy. It only takes one injury at the wrong time to not be able to perform. Let, let me let me also ask you too, because so let, let's take your sport when when you're when you're practicing and you're prepping, you're you're doing let let's just say different types of drills, correct? To get better at different yeah. things in the game. So, Absolutely. so how, how do you breaking it down like to the minimal, the smallest way to do anything in a sport? You know, what's the most efficient way? How do you do it? You know, and gymnastic is very critical because it's one judge that, you know, you get critiqued on that doesn't like something. But if you're flawless, then you win medals. That's tough. Absolutely. Absolutely. There you go. Okay. Uh, well, let's move on to our next uh, one. And uh, we're going to go, uh, let's go Rollo. Arguably the greatest, he certainly is the greatest Olympic sprinter of all time. Um, in 2008 at the Beijing Games, he took the 100-meter final and world record time of 9.69. And what's most impressive about that is that he actually slowed down at the end and started pointing. Uh, and he did it with an untied shoe. Um, the second place finisher was at 9.89. So had he not slowed down, I mean, he, he really dominated that race. Um, it was a, such a huge margin of victory that the Institute of Theoretical Metaphysics did a, a scientific analysis of that race and said he would have finished sub 9.6 had he not slowed down and not had tied shoes. So um, that's how much he dominated that race. Uh, he then, he then um, ran the the 200 and destroyed destroyed a 22 year old world record by running a 9.3, which bested the 9.52 by Michael Johnson. Nine, <clears throat> uh, he was the first sprinter to hold the 100 and 200 uh, world record since the introduction of electric timing, and he was also the first to beat the U.S. U.S. and 200 world record at the same time in the same Olympics. He also helped the Jamaican 4x100 team beat another world record in the 4x1 by running a 37.1. Three events, three gold medals, one first Olympics. At the 2012 London Games, he set another world record at the 100 final by getting gold and beating his own world record time in 9.63. He also won a 200-meter final with a time of 9.32, dominating the second and third place finishers who had 9.4 and 19.82. He was also part of the Jamaican team that set another world record in the 4x1 with a time of 36.84. Two of the two Olympics, six events, six gold medals. 
Then at the 2016 Olympics in Rio, he became the first sprinter to win the 100, 200, and 4 by 100 in three straight Olympic Games. <clears throat> but that 4 by 100 team was actually stripped of their, their gold medal because of doping by Nesta Carter. So in all told, in three Olympics, he went 9 for 9 and, and got for, in gold medals. Overall in his career, and between the Olympics and World Championships, he had 19 gold medals, two, two silvers, and one bronze. Eric, nine for nine is hard to beat. That's pretty impressive. Uh, he was setting records like crazy. I mean, just in your own opinion, do you, do you think that his records will ever be broken? Because he literally crushed the ones that were already there. Um, it's, it's extremely impressive. It's more of, will it ever be broken? That's why they're there. Go after them. You can believe. It's like the four-minute mile that no one could ever cross that barrier, and then as soon as you have that belief that you can do it, then all of a sudden that's that's not a barrier anymore. So what I've seen Bolt did extremely impressive. Well is it easy is it gonna be easy to beat that? No, never easy. But there's always why do you have it out there in the first place? How do we get there? Right. Someone's gonna be bigger, faster, stronger dominate like he did i mean it's just remarkable what these athletes are doing from maybe let's say very early olympics my sister was in the 1976 olympics in montreal and um what did those records look like and what do they look like today i bet you almost all of them are broken um but again why because we're way more efficient in the way we train we have more information um, athletes are just better. I mean, I hate to say it, they, they just have more help. Where before we just, I felt like in that time, trial and error. And there was nothing like this is what we can do, cut off time, and how do we be more efficient? Even the clothes you wear, <laughs> it's all technical in that sense, but you're like, clothes I wear, and the suits that. Speed I was putting out there. Uh, but I'm sure there's gear now that, you know, non drafting gear, you know, whatever it might be besides the athlete itself and then the way they train. I'm way more efficient. There's yeah. probably specialists out there. Hey, you want to be a fast runner? Come with me. I train the best in the world. You have our list of who we're discussing tonight. That are you feeling the same way that I do? That like he's probably the biggest name we're talking about tonight, and maybe that's because of the times we live in and social media. I don't know for sure. And he's got that player. You know, he's got that that it factor where you're like, that was amazing. Like you know, he cruised into the finals, the first one, and then he basically finished the race. We could have got even a better. Uh, time, but he has that flair about him, and I don't, yeah. I don't think it's arrogance. I just think he's confidence. When you turn around and look at the runners behind you right before you cross the finish line, <laughs> that's that might be arrogance. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, again, it's it's noise. He put in the work. He's got that body, that build. Um, and I'm sure he just didn't show up and run the thing he trained 
Harder than everybody else. Well, let's move on to Paul. All right, I'll represent fencing because nobody ever talked about fencing, but I've got uh, Eduardo Mangiarotti, Italian fencer. His greatest event was most likely the Epe, uh, the one with the blunted sword, developed in the 19th century for fencing practice and competition, sort of uh, patterned after the Epe do combat, standard dueling sword of its day, first officially used in conjunction with electric scoring apparatus in 1936. And we're going back to the 30s uh, with my guy here tonight. We, uh, almost 100 years ago, but Eduardo's father, the master fencer, started teaching him, him and his brother, Dario, fencing at uh, eight years old. And this was kind of funny. He was originally naturally right-handed, but at the urging of his father, converted to left-handed, uh, who believed it was a competitive advantage. Kind of reminds me of the movie, The Prince's Bride, if you guys have ever seen that. But, uh, He's most likely ambidextrous, but uh, converted to left hand. His career pretty uh, spans quite a bit. He might have the longevity here tonight, but he was 17 years old. He competed in 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, helping Italy win uh, the team FA gold medal. He won three more team Olympic golds in 52, 56, and 60, and a silver in 48. Uh, as well as the team gold in 1956, three silver in 1948, 52, and 1960 in the foil. Over the course of five editions of the Olympic Games between 36 and 60, he ended up collecting 13 gold medals, uh, sorry, 13 medals, six of them were gold in the FA and foil, making him Italy's most successful ever Olympian. He's also won 26 world championship medals, including 14 gold. He's got quite extensive career, a lot of gold medals, and he might be Italy's still the most decorated uh, Olympic athlete. Eric, he mentions the longevity. What what does it take mentally and physically to remain maintain peak condition like that as an athlete for that long of a time period? I mean, you you did went pretty long in in, in your beach volleyball. Yeah, it's. It's really just doing the, the work, you know, and, and the switch from right to left hand and the advantage I see is the only way you're going to compete against the left-hander in sports is you have to see them all the time. And where do they come from? Well, if it, he may only be one of them. There might be the only lefty out there. And if you can't train against the lefty on them, on a regular basis, and the lefty's always training against righties, there's an advantage there. Um, but longevity, again, it's it's about work and eating the right things and dedicating yourself to your craft and, and try to be, um, you know, I think it's also, let's say you develop your craft and you're good at it. Well, most athletes always think they can get better. They're not sitting there, I want to go metal, I'm done. They're looking to go, when's the next one? It's kind of like right. a, a drug, like I want, I want the next one, give me the next one. I want, I want to work harder. Uh, that motivation, it's really, really tough to beat the champ. Um, just because, especially if the champ is always working and, and trying to perfect his craft even more. You're at a gold medal and you think you can do better. I see that as mentally tough, um, but you also got to do the physical part. 
and try and innovate too at that level. And you know, it's a long time ago. He's probably the innovator. Trying new right. things. Look at this. Watch what I did. I mean, he went from right to left. That's that's not an easy thing to do. But then longevity, he must have been innovating something as a lefty. What was an event, you know, advantageous to win all the time. Paul, I love the reference there to uh, Princess Bride. Yeah, right. Not everybody's going to get that, but definitely. What I was reading, it reminded me of it. Let's finish it off with Brian. All right. I'm going to go back even further than Paul. I'm going to go back to uh, 1920s. Uh, We got Pavel Nurme, a cross-country and long-distance runner out of Finland, known as the Flying Finn. Uh, This guy has a pretty interesting story. His father died when he was a young teen, so he kind of had to step up and become the man of the house. Uh, He got a job running errands for a bakery uh, to help make ends meet. Uh, pushing a wheelbarrow every, everywhere that he went. And he later credited uh, this with strengthening his back and leg muscles and increasing his endurance. Uh, Nervy was really inspired by uh, Finnish runner uh, Hannes Kohlenmanen, uh, and he hoped to surpass him someday. He scraped and saved and, and bought his first pair of sneakers uh, soon after following uh, Hannes's story of his achievements in the Olympics in the newspaper. Uh, Nervy made the 1920 Olympics and won three gold medals and a silver, and he started a 14-year unbeaten streak in cross-country events. Uh, 1924, he was even better. Five golds, and he may have gotten a six, but Team Finland refused to allow him to race in the 10K meter. Uh, in 1928, again, he was successful. He brought home one more gold and two more silvers. Uh, he wanted to participate in the 1932 games, but there was some shenanigans about his uh, amateur status, similar to what happened to Jim Thorpe. Uh, so that didn't happen. But in all, nine golds, three silvers at the Olympic level. He set 22 official world time records and dozen more uh, unofficial records. At one point, he had gone undefeated in 121 consecutive races that were 800 meter- meters or longer. Uh, Nermi is credited with being the first cross-country runner to set the even pace strategy. And uh, his training methods were imitated for decades and decades to come. Uh, I thought it was also interesting that he set the world record for the fastest 25 mile time, uh, two hours and 22 minutes. Very impressive there. Um, So anyways, you know, that's the flying fin, a pioneer of long distance racing and Olympic gold medalist nine times over. Eric, uh, oh, I like that nickname first off, the Flying Fish. That's pretty cool, Brian. <laughs> so, so, so with, with with Pavo, I mean, what are your thoughts on 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 what Brian was saying there? Uh, just sounds like an incredible athlete. Yeah, I think it's more of again, he's working his craft. It worked the first time and he probably found some efficiency or inefficiency in the first, you know, all of his races. And once you get that, you know, you're critiquing a little bit of every time and you're already out in front anyway. So you get to kind of play around with things and obviously you play the right way all the time. I mean, he's dominated yeah. for so long. So we got I mean, just as an athlete, okay. so you're just going through as an athlete. It's how to do your sport the right way. And how do you train the right way? And how do you take care of your body the right way? 
you got guys who, you know, win a medal and then you never see them again. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of athletes in this one and done Olympics only. They never see them again. So, and some of them, some athletes peak. They perform right. at a high level and they just hit it right perfectly. Um, everything kind of goes your way. And then you're a gold medalist, but you know, it's all come down to one thing is dedication and hard work. Right. No shortcuts. Well, let's move into our vote tonight. Cannot vote for your own as usual. Paul, who are you taking? Well, I guess I might just be saying since I live during his, uh, it's somebody I witnessed personally, so I'll go with Dan Barrett. Okay, one for Bolt. Brian? You know, I, when I originally saw this list, I thought, ah, it's going to probably be Bolt. And, and I listened to your guys as, you know, to defend the other guys. He just couldn't really sell me, to be honest. So I got to stick with Bolt. Bolt. Rollo? Uh, when you go 14 years without a loss in any event, you got to give it to that guy. So, knew me. <clears throat> One for the fin. And, uh, Paul, I, I, I was actually going to vote for your guy because, I mean, he that's 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> I was dominating. Him, and, I, mean, I, and, I thought that was crazy. And, what he's third all time, I think, in medals or, or, or something like that. So, yeah, that that's that's highly impressive. And just the, the mentality, like the, the mental game to, to do it that long, I, I'm totally impressed with that. So, Eric, we come to you. Who are you taking? Only got only because I got the witness bolts. Just make cool. it up. All right. So, so many, the world is there's so many fast guys, and you can dominate for that long. Bigger, better athletes. So that is a win for Usain Bolt tonight. Nice job, Rollo. You can pick up the win. Let's move into our Q and A. So, Rollo, you got the win. You've got first question. Then we'll go Brian, Paul, me. Eric, you have a. You have a, a, a prestigious uh, beach volleyball uh, school. Tell us a little bit of how you got started with that and what made you come up with that concept. Because a lot of the, a lot of young girls have gone on to Division One scholarships. So how did that come about? Well, I was fortunate. I grew up here at the beach, uh, Manhattan Beach, uh, specific, and I lived probably like four blocks up. So I was always on the beach. I wasn't just a beach volleyball player. I surfed and boogie board, swim. Uh, my family is a swimming family first. So we are in the water. My sister was a 100 meter butterfly in 1976, and she was 7th in the world. So beach volleyball, just the beach in general, is something that I grew up with, and I um, I can do that at any time and, and enjoy enjoy it. And then I was an indoor first, and there was no beach volleyball from then. We have really competitive um, amateurs, if you will, and I just worked my way up through the ranks. I went to UC Santa Barbara on a scholarship for indoor, and whenever I had a chance, I would always play on the beach in the summer. So I always had that background, always wanted that. I mean, I, one of the biggest tournaments is in Manhattan Beach. We call it the Wimbledon of Beach Volleyball. And that's the one that I grew up watching and I was just 
you know, shaking my hand like someday I'm going to be out there. And someday I'm going to put myself in the position to win. Um, so it was always a dream. And because of where I lived, it seemed natural. So, Eric, I understand that you were an inspiration for your niece, uh, Phelan, to become a volleyball player. Uh, she played for USC at the collegiate level, uh, the U.S. national indoor team for a year, spent several years in Puerto Rico playing in their league. Uh, what did it mean uh, to you that she was sort of following in your footsteps? And were you able to offer her any guidance to sort of help her along her path? The only guidance I would say is she was exposed to it early. So let's say I'm playing in a tournament. She was the ball girl. So what does the ball girl get? She gets to watch up in front girls, boys, men uh, compete. So she was always around it. They, at the time, the athletes um, embraced it unless, you know, like rallied with her, um, talked with her. So it's more like her exposure was a natural. Um, and she, she was 6'5". She was physical. Um, and having that early age of watching, you know, the best athletes in the world compete, I'm sure it has helped. And just watch them and absorb, like, that's the way you do it. You know, that's the way you play the game. And, uh, again, she had a good um, foundation. And then from there, she just kind of grew and she dominated. She was, she's extremely physical. I want to focus on this right here, the shredded individual. <laughs> All week, Mike and Brian have been telling me, like, ask this guy about his exercise and diet routine. Ask him, ask him, ask him. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you, Magic Chan, what do you got to do to train? Look like this right here. That one's, I'm 48 in that photo. I, it was kind of a random. I play four-man. I still play today. Um, I just won a four-man tournament. And one of the guys, uh, Jeremy Casebeer, um, he's like, my partner got hurt. My other partner got hurt. I need to find somebody else you want to play. And I didn't think he was serious. I'm like, I'm, you know how old I am? Um but I was in good physical condition. So I said, sure, there's not very many 48-year-olds that ever come back and play in the ABC. I don't have to be at the net. Jeremy would take care of that. I can play defense still. I thought it was a good, fun, challenging opportunity uh, that I couldn't pass up if it was if it was true. <laughs> I didn't know if it was, if it was 100%. I thought maybe you could always get someone younger, but um, you know, I, I try to, I try to stay in good shape because I want to do certain things and I don't want to have limitations. Um, can I do all the same things? No, I can't jump as high, I'm not as fast, but I can still enjoy competing. Uh, and, and that's number one, as long as I can stay healthy. You know, I have four surgeries on my right knee and two on my left, so. I'm like a football player in that sense. Um, but again, it's, you got to take care of your body. And I'm in, I'm in good shape right now, but it's only because of the way I keep the weight off and my diet. I'm not a big eater. Um, 
and I try to take care of myself as best I can. So 2000 Olympics, you and Bland, you, you guys end up getting a nine seed there after the little round robin thing. You beat the three three seed Brazil in the gold medal game. But you guys, you weren't favorites to win or even medal for that matter. And a month prior, you hadn't even qualified. So walk us through what, what kind of happened there. It's a two-year process. Uh, you travel around the world trying to get your best eight finishes. It came all the way down to the end. I think we were in Belgium at the time. And we have to get fourth or better. If we get fifth, we go. We don't go to Olympics. So it was high stress. Uh, Dane and I, I don't think we really talked too much. Um, I think I was kind of going through like trying to get ourselves in this situation. Couldn't like we put ourselves in a better situation? Um, the would have could have should have. But then at the end, game day came and we were extremely driven, focused. Um, and we ended up beating actually, uh, Loyola and Manuel. They're the number two Brazilian team. And we ended up beating them and we ended up taking third. Um, and that put us in the, in the Olympics. And I think, like I said, I think we went a month later, uh, to Australia. I mean, that's how fast the turnaround was and the uncertainty. Uh, but I felt that because of that, radical pressure that we have is if you you do it you're in you don't you die you're out um helped us in the olympics because there's no more stress as far as like we were we're good uh we're in where we want to be we train hard and the thing about us is that we're very confident especially if we have momentum on our side and um, that's kind of what happened we won the first one which you know we only played one game at a time we didn't i don't we never looked at who we played next if we won that game uh and we actually only played one point at a time because we didn't really care what happened previously we just needed to win so it was just more of um not much of a strategy but that's the way we did it how did you and your 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 uh, volleyball partner meet? Like, how did it, how did that relationship form? You know, were you guys practicing together? Did you have mutual friends? And how did you guys get together and form that bond? Yeah, it's a tough. That's probably the toughest thing about beach volleyball. So I'll give you an example. Like, the first year there's 23 tournaments. When I first started in 1992, I think 1993. Um, I went through 13 partners in 23 tournaments. Meaning, wow. if I did 20, if I got 25th, and maybe even the 17th, which is a one-two barbecue, you're out of tournament in two in two, in two games. Um, I didn't go back. I felt like we weren't good together. So I was moving and shaking, and I was after one thing. I wanted to make it on this tour. I wanted to be a professional beach volleyball player. So I was trying to figure out that chemistry. And obviously, at that time, the guys who stayed together and worked things out are the guys that typically finished better more often. Sure, they'd have, you know, an upset and they didn't have a good tournament, but for the most part, that's how it worked. So as I was learning, Dane 
Um, it actually happened. My my partner at the time got hurt, and Dane's like, "Well, why don't we play together?" Uh, we're very similar height, athletic ability, strength, work ethic. Um, the very first tournament, we took second. We lost to Karch Karai and, and Adam Johnson. And we, I, I thought we could have had him, but I think the inexperience, um, we let it get away from us. Um, but that's how athletic we were right off the bat. And then from there, it was more of, I didn't have, we didn't always train together. That's a, he lived up in Santa Monica, it's, you know, like 20 miles away. And I lived down near Madame Beach. But again, I didn't have to worry about what is he doing? Is he training more than I am? He's training as much as I am. Um, that was not a factor. It was just more of like, how do we figure out ways to win? Um, you know, perfection. You know, where do you like to set, transition, serving? You know, it's all that working things out. But it took, it takes time. It takes a lot of time. So we we got together and traveled around for, I think it was almost three years. Um and then the Olympics happened. So we we once you're in the Olympic push for two years, you can't really split apart because those points they split as well. So it's best to find a partner and then go after it. That's what we did. But we had success on our ADP tour before we went to the FIG and national tour. So, Eric, you, you were the head coach of the Miracosta Beach Volleyball team from uh, 2014 to 2018 and had a ton of success. A streak of 87 consecutive uh, IBVL league wins, five undefeated IBVL championship seasons, and two California state championships. So what was it like coaching for that team, and, and how were you guys able to maintain such dominance? Talent. You know, we have tons of talent. Um, I train them for the next level, though. So the advantage that I have over at Coast is Monday and Wednesday is close to practice. I have my own club Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. So it's going to be pretty tough to beat talented Coast players. And we're training more than you. And you have Olympians teaching you how to play. So that philosophy or that, those training factors, I think it's almost impossible for you guys, for anybody to beat us just because we have, we're training more than you and we have better information. Um, so I was just fortunate to be in that situation and guide them, not just for high school, that, that wasn't the purpose. We were good high school players, but we're actually good college players. Eric, when you look back on your volleyball career, what's, what's your achievement that you're most proud of? Um, I think the biggest achievement, and obviously, is the gold medal. The other one is just the biggest tournaments that the ADP has. I think I've won all of them at least once um but it's more being a good person too i think that that's extremely important especially those fans i you know they i took the time always if you're a little kid or someone here can you sign this unless i was in the 
Uh, if he didn't came and I was needed to go cool off and go straight to the tent, then I'd go straight to the tent. But even that wasn't always something that was going to stop me from getting the signature for someone that wanted it. I felt that that was our job as as investors on Beach Volleyball is, is give them experience that, you know, if you're up and close, then come say hi. And if you want a signature or autograph, or I felt that that was a, a simple thing, a simple thank you for coming and hopefully you play someday and, and maybe that will inspire you to play play the game. Grow the sport. I think that's an, an extremely important thing to do. And um, I'm more on the selfless side of that, um, except when it comes to competing and, and once I'm in the arena, then things change. So uh, tell us about your charity, Dig for Kids. Dig for Kids started in 2000. It was basically to teach kids how I grew up. You kind of like the Boys and Girls Club. You do your homework first, and then you can go and play. Um, so we would go to inner city schools, mainly sixth, seventh, eighth grade. They're kind of on their own as far as I, I, I understand what I need to do or don't tell me what to do. So the most influential were that sixth and seventh graders and sometimes the fifth graders. Um, but again, teaching them how are those kids in well-to-do neighborhoods what do they do? And that's what I did. I went to them and I showed them what we do. And um, they don't have the greatest role model, which is unfortunate, but at least they get that exposure on how to be successful. Is, is there a website that people can donate at? Uh, digforkids.com. So it's D-I-G for digging like volleyball, F-O-R-K-I-D-S.com. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you, Eric, for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. I know we had the time difference and everything, so I, I appreciate you working it out. Absolutely. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for having me. Excellent. I want to remind everybody, make sure you hit that like and subscribe button. Uh, whatever you're listening on, YouTube, iHeart, Spotify, whatever you're listening on, hit that like and subscribe button. We'll see you next time. Have a great night.